One of the arguments used to defend the legitimacy of a belief or practice is called the appeal to tradition. This is a view that something must have existed for a long time to be considered valid. This stance comes up when examining faiths outside of the quote-unquote mainstream culture, such as Wicca and modern forms of paganism. However, does this argument of appealing to tradition hold up when looking at Christmas? In this episode, we'll examine how the celebration of Christmas has changed from its earliest roots to its modern form. What does the evolution of Christmas over the past nearly two millennia say when it comes to current attempts to revitalize Earth-based religions? Is Ola necessarily better? And how much influence is okay before a belief system is seen as deviating too far from its core? Stay tuned for this holiday geek out episode of Spiritual AF Sundays, The Appeal to Tradition. You're listening to Spiritual AF Sundays, created and hosted by The Mystic Geek. If you're looking to explore intriguing questions about the meaning of life and our place in the universe, then you're in the right spot. We dive into topics often discussed as sound bites on social media and take a deeper look. Whether it's woo topics like astrology and mysticism, or seemingly mundane matters like technology and politics, we cover it all. We explore our own thoughts and beliefs, talk to experts, and uncover hidden meanings. These fascinating areas of exploration can help us question ourselves and better understand our world. Ready to grow and explore in your spiritual journey? We're glad you can join us. It's time to start your week off by being spiritual AF. And welcome back. This is Jessica, the Mystic Geek, and for this episode, we're going to be talking about Christmas and traditions. And whether a religion or whether a belief has to be around for a very long time to be considered legitimate. Likewise, whether that belief needs to remain pure, unadulterated from the outside world in order for it to be seen as legitimate as well. How we're going to go about doing this is I'm going to first share with you the origins of Christmas. Then we're going to talk about some of the evolving symbols of Christmas, the things that we see nowadays that were not around during the first few centuries post-Jesus. And then finally, we're going to talk a little bit more, and this is going to be some of the noodling bit, about the whole concept of tradition, beliefs, and authenticity. Let's get into the origins of Christmas. The reason why I say this is a mix of history and theory is we did not have Twitter back then. We did not have the New York Times or whatever would be in that area back then. A lot of history at that point was still oral tradition that was passed around. There were some scribes that documented things, but it was not as accessible of a tool as media is nowadays. So we are going back and we're trying to fill in the pieces when it comes to various events and rationale with that. I hate to say it, the song that Christ was born on Christmas Day was inaccurate. Jesus was not born on December 25th or whatever day that was in the calendar that Joseph and Mary ascribed to at that point in time. So there are two types of holidays that we look at. Anniversaries 
and observances. Anniversaries are celebrated each year on the day of that specific event, whereas observances are celebrated on a day that isn't necessarily the day of that event. I'll give you an example here. The American 4th of July is an anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, so it is an anniversary. Whereas if we look at the history of President's Day, this is a holiday that was set up in observance to honor the birthdays and lives of all U.S. presidents. Congress approved the Uniform Monday Holiday Bill in 1968, which established President's Day as the third Monday of February. How does this line up with presidential birthdays? George Washington's birthday is on February 22nd, and Abraham Lincoln's birthday is on February 12th. Rather than pick one birthday over the other or split the time frame in the middle, they decided let's go with a Monday because that makes things easy for federal workers who are going to get that day off anyways. Let's take a look at the word Christmas. It is Christ's Mass. It is intended to be an observation, a liturgical celebration. For those of you who are not familiar with that term, a liturgical celebration is a special occasion for religious believers to come together around their shared beliefs in order to be able to participate in prayers and rituals to celebrate the divine. And in addition to the ritual aspect, there was also a community aspect as well. This is where the worshiping group goes out into the public in order to provide acts of service or show kindness to other people. Early Christians did not jump onto the idea of celebrating Jesus' birth, at least not right away. At that time, Christianity was a highly persecuted religion within the Roman Empire, and there were a lot of people who were martyred for their beliefs. So the early Christian fathers focused on the day of the martyr's death rather than commemorating the day of that martyr's birth. They actually considered the day of the martyr's death as their birthday into martyrdom. When they looked at other faiths that were out there and saw the celebration of divine figures' birthdays, they considered that to be too pagan for them. Now, let's talk about Constantine, the Roman emperor from around the late 200, early 300 AD era. This individual could be seen as one of the biggest influencers in bringing Christianity to a point of acceptance within the Roman Empire. How this happened was as Emperor Constantine was preparing for a huge battle in 312 AD, he was inspired by a vision. And in this vision, he saw the sign of the cross shining forth from the sun with words of assurance. Now I'm gonna translate these words to English rather than trying to butcher Latin here. The English translation is, in this sign you shall conquer. Other people interpreted this as being more of a command. In this sign, conquer. This vision proclaimed that victory would be Constantine's if he continued under this divinely ordained symbol. So he went out, he fought with the symbol on his soldier's shield, and he won. The following year, Constantine went and issued the Edict of Milan, granting all citizens within the Roman Empire equal rights regardless of faith. 
So in essence, he made practicing Christianity legal. Constantine went above and beyond that. He had helped with assembling the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD by providing both the location for this council of bishops as well as using public funds to cover the travel expenses for these bishops. Talk about mind blown for early Christians. That council developed the first uniform Christian doctrine known as the Nicene Creed, which emphasized the birth and resurrection of Jesus. In addition to that, Constantine ordered that the Church of the Nativity be built in Bethlehem. Finally, he wanted to have Christianity be considered more accepted within Roman culture, so he sought out ways to blend Christian and pagan, essentially Roman, traditions. When we take a look at history, the first time that December 25th was mentioned as the date of Jesus' birth, was AD 336, AD 336, during Constantine's reign. During that time, there were two other festivals that focused on the deities that the Romans honored. The first one is called Saturnalia, which honored the god Saturn. And this was on December 17th through the 23rd, Saturn being a god of agriculture. There's a couple of tradition points in there that are interesting. The first one is gift giving, which is something that permeated into modern Christianity. The other aspect of this is in Saturnalia, there is role reversal when it comes to power dynamics. The servant is served by the master. The servants are made the kings, they're given royal experiences, and the royalty, the nobles humble themselves in that. When we look at Christian theology and Jesus, there is that belief that Jesus, this divine entity, humbled himself by coming down to earth and incarnating in human form. So we have that role reversal going on there as well, which is interesting. The other holiday that comes up occurred from December 25th to January 1st. This is the celebration of the Persian god of light, Mithras. So we have these two deities that have their feast periods right around the time of the winter solstice, where we see the daylight shrink and then starts to come back. So it made sense at that time to juxtapose in the narrative of Jesus's birth with the belief that Jesus being the light that is brought into the world. This isn't to say that Constantine's involvement in all of this was 100% benevolent. Granted, he may have had a lot of faith, he may have had belief, he was baptized before his death. However, he was emperor and had to take a look at things from a larger perspective when it comes to the Roman Empire. When we look at the Nicene Creed, the belief statement that came out of the Council of Nicaea, it focused only on Jesus' birth and on his resurrection. It brought two archetypes out there, the baby and the martyr on the cross. There's about 30 some years in the middle that are not taken into account. And it also takes some of the more revolutionary beliefs and ideas of Jesus, the things that are brought up in the gospels and it puts them onto the sidelines. 
was that intentional? Was it intentional to take the more revolutionary, the more political, the more controversial aspects of Jesus's message and put them on the sidelines and instead make his birth the focus, a birth which lined up with the births or the creation stories of other light deities? That is something to consider. Now that we're done with talking about the early history of Christmas, let's talk about the evolving symbols and traditions. There's a lot of things that you've probably seen out and about. You might have even seen them in church settings. I'm going to go through those different pieces and where they came from historically. To start off with, let's talk about the whole concept of Advent. If you're not Christian and you're not familiar with Christian customs, Advent is the time frame before Christmas. This tradition started about the 5th century AD. Within Christianity, especially the Catholic Church, this time frame is considered to be the start of the liturgical year. The liturgical year being the time frame of telling the story of Christianity. It starts and ends at this point in time. Now, when does Advent start? That really depends. There's different beliefs based on what type of church. You've got the Western churches and then you've got the Eastern Orthodox churches. The Western churches typically start off the liturgical year. They start off Advent on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. The Eastern Orthodox start about 40 days before Christmas, and they focus a little bit more on something called the Nativity Fast. Parallel to what Lent is for Easter, which is that time frame of reflection and sacrifice, during Advent, the church uses different colors. The primary color that you'll often see is purple, though some denominations will use blue as that color for Advent. The exception to this is the Sunday before Christmas, Gaudete Sunday. During that Sunday, they might use the color rose for the liturgical vestments because it's a time of celebration since it is the last Sunday service, the last liturgy before Christmas. You're probably wondering where these colors come from. They actually come from a Roman Missal that was created following the Council of Trent in 1570. And this Roman Missal was meant to make things more uniform across the Catholic Church. Prior to that, the colors rose and purple were not part of the liturgical colors. The colors worn by the priests, the colors used to decorate the area, this was something that was brought in during that time frame. And then you'll also see candles, usually on or near the altar. They're gonna have three candles that are purple, representing that spirituality, the somberness of the situation. You may have one pink candle in that, representing that Gaudete Sunday, the excitement coming up. And sometimes there is that white candle or the nativity candle that is brought in as well. Again, this is something that started about fifth century, about 400 years after Jesus. And the color coding on this was from about the 16th century. So 12 days of Christmas, what the heck are they talking about with that? They're talking about that time frame from the day after Christmas up to Epiphany, which is January 6th. You're probably wondering, what the heck is Epiphany? Just threw another term at us. 
Epiphany is a holiday that started in the 4th century, 361 AD. So about 25 years-ish after the church started to officially recognize December 25th as Christmas. What the Epiphany commemorates started off actually as two different things. One being the visitation of the three magi. So the three wise men, the three kings, whichever translation you want to use, who saw the star in the sky, followed the star, found Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and provided gifts that were symbolic of different things. So that's the first part of the Epiphany. The second part was the observance of Jesus' baptism. In about 1955, a separate feast day was set up to commemorate the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. So that part split off, but that was originally part of the original observation of the Epiphany. That is where we come up with the whole concept of the 12 days of Christmas. And this is a time frame of celebration from Christmas all the way to January 6th. If you're thinking about how some traditions use Advent as a time of fasting and a time of reflection. This is the celebration they have afterwards, the way that they break that fast. Now we are going to talk about Christmas trees. Why evergreens? Why pine trees or other evergreens? Evergreens do not lose their foliage during the winter months. They stay green throughout. In the winter, an evergreen tree is a reminder that the waning light will return, that life conquers death, that there is going to be continuation. Germany actually started the tradition of bringing trees into the home for Christmas, and Martin Luther is credited with the tradition of lights on the Christmas tree. The story is that after coming home from a sermon, he looked up at the sky, he saw the twinkling lights, and that gave him the idea of attaching candles to the tree. They have since been moved on to electrical lights because I'm sure you probably guessed having candles on your tree, especially once the tree starts to get a little bit dry, is a massive fire hazard. So yay electricity being able to take care of that concern for us. Christmas trees were great in Europe, but when the extremist Puritans went over to the Americas, they decided that Christmas trees and fun in general were too pagan. They actually went as far as to outlaw observances of Christmas outside of attending church services. No decorations, no caroling, nada. Americans did not adopt the tradition of Christmas trees until about the 1830s, and you can thank the German settlers in Pennsylvania for that. We talked about the Christmas tree. Let's talk about another couple of traditions that are a bit more edible. Gingerbread. So we're talking about gingerbread men, gingerbread people, etc. Gingerbread originated around the 11th century. The soldiers, the warriors in the Crusades brought back this pungent spice, this pungent plant from their travels. Over time, it was used in various things, including baked goods. And during the medieval era, there were gingerbread baker guilds. That's right, they had people unionize around making gingerbread. The gingerbread guild bakers would bake that gingerbread, except for Christmas and Easter. In that point, it was allowable for the general public to be able to bake those things themselves. 
the first gingerbread figures were gifts given by Queen Elizabeth I of England to her distinguished guests. She had gingerbread figures made in the likeness of the people that she invited and the people that she thought in high regard of. The popularity of the gingerbread house actually started with Hansel and Gretel. So it started with a rather gruesome fairy tale in the early 1800s. In that story, it was actually a house of bread and it got adapted into a house of gingerbread. And that is how baking and decorating gingerbread men and gingerbread houses became Christmas traditions. Let's move from baked goods to not so edible plants. I'm going to start off with mistletoe. This is actually a pretty naughty plant for a couple of different reasons. First off, let's talk about the etymology of the word mistletoe. It actually comes from the Anglo-Saxon words missile, which is poop, and tan, which is stick. Yes, mistletoe equals poop stick. There you go. There is a story about mistletoe in Norse mythology. The god Baldr was paranoid that the various animals and plants of the world were out to kill him. So his wife and mom, after a point of trying to calm him down, went to all of the animals and plants and pleaded with them to not mess with Baldr. Unfortunately, they missed one. And Baldr was killed by an arrow made of mistletoe. So in response to that, his wife and his mother decided, all right, we got to do things to appease the mistletoe. That's one of the reasons why kissing under the mistletoe became a tradition. The plant was ignored, so we are trying to make the plant happy by showing it nice things so that it doesn't harm people again. Pagan cultures saw the white berries of the mistletoe as a symbol of male fertility. I'm going to let you sit and think on that one for a bit. Yes, if you thought we were talking about semen, yes, that is what they are alluding to when it comes to the imagery of mistletoe berries. Let's go back to the custom of kissing under the mistletoe. It was further pushed by 18th century servants, and part of the lore behind that was that if a man saw a woman under the mistletoe, it was his right to kiss them. In addition to that, there was the superstition that if the woman refused, that bad luck would fall upon her. Coercion, not the greatest. This thing looks innocent enough, but there are some cringy bits to the history. All right, we should probably pivot here. Let's talk about a less cringy plant that is tied to Christmas, which is the holly plant. Holly is part of pagan Celtic mythology. There is the Oak King, who represents the summer, the warmer part of the year, and then there's the Holly King, who represents the dark and winter part of the year. Those two go at it. The whole explanation for the changing of the seasons is the Oak King and the Holly King battling. Part of the year, the Oak King wins. Part of the year, the Holly King wins. This plant is also associated with the Roman god Saturn, the god of agriculture, which, as we talked about before, Christmas and its time frame in the calendar lines up with Saturnalia, which is the feast day or feast time frame tied to that Roman god Saturn. Christians added in their own interpretations when it comes to the various elements of the holly plant. Those sharp leaves that are on there, they tie to the crown of thorns that Jesus wore, the red berries, they tie to his sacrifice and the blood. 
and the evergreen nature of Holly ties to the concept of eternal life. Let's go on to other topics that are a little bit more modern and slightly more secular. First up is gift giving. As I shared before about Saturnalia, there was gift giving back then, so this tradition within Christianity probably was influenced by that Roman holiday. In addition to that, the early Christians also associated this tradition with the three magi giving the gifts to Jesus. The time frame for when the gift giving happened has changed over history. Originally, this was done either on the feast day for St. Nicholas, who we'll talk about in a bit, whose feast day is December 6th, or it was done in early January. It was about the 19th century when that gift giving day was moved from either St. Nicholas's Day or early January to Eve. Since we're talking about gift giving, then we might as well talk about Santa Claus, who has gone through a lot of changes since his origins. The origin of Santa Claus actually starts with St. Nicholas, the patron saint of children, whose feast day, the day of his martyrdom, is December 6th. The third century AD was when St. Nicholas was around. Over time, his story was adopted by various cultures, various traditions. The Dutch name for St. Nicholas is Sint Nicholas, or the nickname is Sinterklaas. Hold on to that for a moment. As the Europeans immigrated to the United States, Sinterklaas gained popularity during the 18th and 19th centuries. And then in about the early 19th century, that is when life-sized or live versions of Sinterklaas or Santa Claus started showing up in various shops. Since we're talking about marketing schemes, let's go into the whole concept of the Christmas pickle. There are some stories that the Christmas pickle may have been tied to some German festival, but that has been debunked. It was actually set up as a marketing scheme for importing glass Christmas tree decorations from Germany. And it has nothing to do with the lore around St. Nicholas resurrecting a group of boys who were murdered, butchered, and stored in brine. Absolutely not. No connection whatsoever. I don't care what you say. I don't think it's true. There's no way that we're going to have something that is a jovial part of Christmas tradition actually based in dark material. Not like the gingerbread houses that I mentioned. No way, no how. Now that I got that little bit of silliness out of my system, let's talk about the last bit here, the Yule Log. I'm sure you're probably going, what about Elf on the Shelf, caroling, wassailing, whatnot? I can only go for so long here, folks. If you want to do research on those other bits, go ahead and do that. I'm just ending at the Yule Log within Christian tradition for Christmas. The Yule Log was a log that was chosen by the family and it was burned in the hearth piece by piece from Christmas to Epiphany. So during the 12 days of Christmas. So Yule Log and Christmas, when was this actually connected together? Its ties to Yule were mentioned in 17th century literature. Prior to that, it was just the Christmas log until that little surprise moment. Now, what is Yule? 
Yule is a winter holiday that is observed by the Germanic people, and Yuletide is the two-month celebration from mid-November to mid-January. When you think about it, this is that full time frame when we see the light getting less and less during the day. We hit solstice, and then we start seeing it come back up again. So it's that maintaining that hope that the light will return. If you want to learn more about Yule and the various practices, the internet is out there for you. After listening to me explain the origins of the observance of Christmas and the evolution of its spiritual and secular customs, you're probably going, Jess, where are you going with this? Well, listener, I'm glad you asked. I wanted to bring a bunch of foundational material for discussing what we call the appeal to tradition. What is this term? The appeal to tradition is a logical fallacy that occurs when someone argues that a particular idea, belief, or practice is true or valid simply because it has been around for a long time or is part of a long-standing tradition. This type of argument is often used in discussions about religion as many religious beliefs and practices have been passed down through generations and are seen as integral parts of the religion's tradition. In discussions about religion, the appeal to tradition can be used as a way to defend or justify a particular belief or practice. For example, someone might argue that a particular belief is true because it's been held by that religion for centuries, or that a particular practice should be followed because it has been part of that religion's tradition for a long time. However, the appeal to tradition is generally considered to be a flawed argument as the fact that something has been around for a long time does not necessarily mean that it is true or valid. It is important to critically evaluate the evidence and reasoning behind a belief or practice rather than simply accepting it because it is part of a tradition. When I look at the whole concept of appeal to tradition, when it comes to Christianity as well as other faiths, I can actually break it down into two parts. The first part is looking at the concept of historical accuracy or inaccuracy. So effing what? Why is historical accuracy seen as a source of credibility? In addition to that, who sets the standards for determining and proving the historical accuracy of a practice or tradition? And who benefits from those standards? If there are cultures that have developed a writing system they're likely going to be in a much better position to defend the challenge of historical accuracy compared to a culture that relies a lot more on oral traditions instead of written. The whole idea of relying on historical accuracy or calling out historical inaccuracy pulls attention away from some of the core material of these religions, which is focusing on the moral and spiritual teachings. Another objection that comes up is that of syncretism. Syncretism occurs when there is a religion or a group, and that group pulls in and adopts bits and pieces from the local practices, the local religions, and the local traditions. Some people think that is a bad thing because they feel that as a practice or as a belief adopts to either the modern time or the modern culture, it is becoming less pure from a historical perspective. Again, we go back to the question of whether or not that is really a bad thing and who is setting the standard of historical purity and how are they benefiting from that? Interesting thoughts there. The important thing to realize 
is that assimilation can occur naturally. That an area that adopts that religion that's coming in might adapt the traditions and customs to better fit what they're used to. That was often the case when it came to Christianity. Part of that was you had a lot of missionaries of taking over various areas and of proselytizing and converting. And then on the flip side, the local people would find ways to maintain their folk practices by blending that into the Christian beliefs. When you take a look at syncretism from that perspective, what ends up happening is that different locations and cultures end up having different guiding beliefs. This can lead to conflict or factions, which some people see as a downside when it comes to syncretism because they're focusing heavily on purity and on unity. The last bit that comes up with syncretism is the whole concept of pulling from other traditions and practices. There can be potential power dynamics in play that the dominant group, the incoming religion, is pulling from the minor groups, the minor religions, and taking what they feel simply fits without fully understanding how those pieces fit together with that local existing religion or group. In the modern day, we have the term for that called cultural appropriation. We don't know if that happened within Christianity. That depends on whether the Christian leaders looked at what other people were doing and saying, ooh, this is shiny, we want to add to it. Or whether it was the locals who were being colonized by Christian missionaries and groups deciding, all right, for us to survive, we need to take on this new religion, at least as a veneer, and then we're going to go through and add our own little bits. Those are the two talking points that I see when it comes to the appeal to tradition, looking at purity when it comes to history, and then looking at purity when it comes to those belief systems, those traditions continuing to exist across time without the local beliefs or traditions influencing those core feelings. I'm going to throw it back at you, dear listeners. Do you believe that a religion needs to be tied to historical events? or at least be able to defend its claim of connection to historical practices or groups in order to be seen as valid. Likewise, what's your take on religions pulling from other belief systems? Is it perfectly okay? Absolutely taboo, or does that depend on various factors? And if so, what? We'd like to hear from you. There's two ways that you can reach out. Either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com, or you can leave me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash the mystic geek with that we're going to wrap up today's episode on the appeal to tradition join us next week for our new year's episode which explores the tradition of new year's resolutions two weeks from now on january 8th we are going to talk about the concepts of rest and action and the need to find balance between the two of them i'm still noodling over ideas for future episodes pretty sure the one on january 15th is going to be around the myths of self-care but don't quote me on that If you have topics you want me to explore and discuss, please reach out. With that, I hope you have a spiritual AF week. Take care. Thank you for joining us for Spiritual AF Sundays. This show is hosted by The Mystic Geek. That's me. Got comments or questions from today's episode? 
You can either email me at jess at themysticgeek.com or send me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash themysticgeek. Don't worry, I'll put the link in the show notes. Help others start off their week with a spiritual AF Sunday by sharing this episode with them. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts help spiritual seekers find our show. So do the thing.